to one of the biggest twits among characters in French literature, Monsieur Homais, the Voltairean chemist in Flaubert's novel Madame Bovary. He's discussing with another twit, the vicar Bournisien, who asks whether Homais is a Christian or not. Homais answers with a common cop-out. You find that on your handout. I admire Christianity. It first sets the slaves free, introduced a moral into the world, and so on. But the first fact, abolition of slavery, is desperately false. The abolition may have been a consequence of the diffusion of Christian ideas, but it had to wait for centuries to become effective. What of the second claim introducing into the world a, mora a morality? Well, Christianity didn't introduce any new morality. To be precise, it didn't find any new commandment. It could not do so in the first place. To quote C.S. Lewis, the human mind has no more power of inventing a new value than of imagining a new primary color. <coughs> this is very well, but this presupposes something that we are hardly allowed to take for granted, i.e. that rules are not commandments meant to distinguish people who <coughs> abide by them from other ones. They are the basic survival kit of mankind, enabling both hominization and humanization. Little wonder that with Christianity, the Ten Commandments, the de so-called Decalogue, remained there. Now it is a matter of common knowledge that the equivalent of the rulings is to be found elsewhere and even in earlier epochs. It may be the case that they had not yet been penned in so pithy a list as in Exodus 20, chapter 20. But apart from this literary dimension, the content can be found in every cultural realm. Prohibition of incest, prohibition against killing, and so on, are to be found everywhere. Little wonder for whom assumes that they are deeply engraved in human conscience. One can say in a more sober tone that a human society which would dispense with them would destroy itself in the long run, either because of inner strife or because of boredom and forgetfulness of the necessity to reproduce. There is a passage in the fourth gospel in which Jesus says that he gives his disciples a new commandment that John 13, 34. This couldn't but arouse in his contemporaries, pious Jewish believers, observant Jews, faithful to Moses' law, feelings of outrage. Adding something to Moses' law or removing anything from it was a capital offense. One should imagine the hearers picking stones in order to throw them to Jesus. Now, what follows is a disappointing anticlimax. The allegedly new commandment, love each other, is a literal quotation of the Old Testament, in which love your neighbor is a commandment in Leviticus 19.18. The only difference being linguistic in nature where the Hebrew has no reciprocal pronoun and uses neighbor in its stead, the Greek has and says love each other. What is really interesting and really new is what follows in Jesus' mouth. Love each other as I loved you, i.e. giving my life on your behalf. The French historian Numa Denis Fustel de Coulanges, in his path-breaking book of 1864 on the ancient city, observes that Christianity 
was the first religion that never claimed to be the foundation of legal rulings. This is the quotation I put as number three on the uh, handout. Christianity is the first religion that didn't claim that law depend on it. I would add, it might be not only the first religion, but the only one. One remembers the phrase about Christianity coined by another of my fellow countrymen, Marcel Gaucher, Christianity is la religion de la sortie de la religion. <laughs> his French is rather difficult to render in good English. The translator of his first masterpiece chose a religion for departing religion. I would prefer the religion that brings about the exit from religion. Be that as it may, one could as well say that Christianity is the religion of the entrance into religion to the extent that it is the first religion and perhaps the only one that is a religion only, a religion to cure, a religion and nothing else. In other words, a religion in which the religious element is chemically pure, isolated from whatever is not religious, morals, politics, hygiene, and so on and so forth. Clothing. One could even venture to say that Christianity is both, or even that it is both because the two aspects bring about each other. Both, I mean, entrance and exit. Because Christianity concentrates in itself what is religious only, it leaves outside of itself what is not religious, but economic, political, medical, and so on. In those non-religious realms, Christianity leaves the choice to competent authorities. There is in Islam a prophetic medicine. There is no Christian medicine. Doctors are in charge. There is Jewish cuisine because of the rules of kashrut. There is no Christian cuisine. Cooks are in charge. There is the veil for Muslim women. There is no Christian clothing. Tailors are in charge, etc. And in particular, this is my well, thesis, there is no specifically Christian morals. Now, I will examine, the, after this utterly negative part of my paper, I will examine, <coughs> examine the positive contribution of Christianity to morality under two headings. The first one is rather obvious and can be elicited without much pain from the statements made by Jesus, mainly in the Sermon on the Mount. Moral rules have to be taken, the same moral rules as the rules of common humanity, moral rules have to be taken with the utmost seriousness and internalized External behavior is important, but not decisive. What really matters is the intention. It is not enough not to sleep with a neighbor's wife. Even the desire to do that must be smothered. It is not enough not to kill one's enemy. We should not even wish him dead, which implies that we must love our enemy, and so on and so forth. Well, I will well, content myself, and I hope you will content yourselves, with those short observations on the internalization and the radicalization of the moral commandments. But the content <coughs> remains very much the same. The second contribution of Christianity, this is more important, is not the knowledge of moral law. What is really crucial <coughs> is its bearing. To whom shall we apply the moral law? And for this, one needs eyes in order to see people as potential well, recipients of the moral commandments. Christianity does nothing else than opening our eyes. It is not enough to know that I should love my neighbor. 
But the question of the lawyer in the gospel according to Luke is perfectly justified. Who is my neighbor? Who is a human being? Who has the right to be considered as human and who has not? For the Judeans of Jesus' time, the Samaritans, their neighbors, <laughs> geographically speaking, were hardly full-fledged humans. In the fourth gospel, we have this scene with the Samaritan woman in which it is said that Judeans didn't want to have any contact with Samaritans, whom they consider as traitors of sorts, as heretics, apostates. And this is precisely why Jesus chose to tell a story about a Samaritan and into the bargain a story in which the Samaritan is the good guy. In the ancient world, slaves, newborn babies, were subhuman, or not yet totally human. They were invisible as human. There is a short story by Chesterton in which the postman turns out to have been the murderer. Now, nobody could suspect him because he remained invisible, mentally invisible, precise as Father Brown, because no nobody ever notices postmen somehow. In the same way, but in a far more tragic mood, black people in the US, according to the title of Ralph Ellison's famous novel, Invisible Man, were not looked at. Now Christianity made, so my second thesis, Christianity made some categories of human beings visible as human. We take for granted without our getting a clear conscience of it, that there is such a thing as a common human nature. This has two consequences. First, there exists a level on which featherless bipeds are deemed to be human, previous to any affiliation, previous to their belonging to any community, be it ethnic, religious, or whatnot. Second, this common nature brings with it a duty and perhaps sometimes an instinct of solidarity and mutual help between the members of the species in which we all partake. The Stoic philosophers supposed that, and this is the quotation uh, from Cicero's uh, De Finibus, uh, which is a... Um, well, let's say, an expanded and somehow watered-down version of the Stoic teachings. From this impulse is developed a sense, sorry, the sense of mutual attraction which unites human beings as such. This also is bestowed by nature. The mere fact of their common humanity requires that one man should feel another man to be akin to him, non alienu. And of course, we recognize in the non alienos that closes the quote, the trite line by Terence, which he ironically puts into the mouth of a busybody who is driven only by curiosity, almost sum nihil humani ame alienum puto. Since I'm a man, I don't consider that anything human <coughs> could be uh, foreign to me. As a consequence, we show his, we show his way to a perfect stranger who asks, who asks for it. We help him back to his feet if we slipped and fell in the street, and so on, with the impression that we are doing something utterly natural. This view has taken for us in the same time as the idea of a basic equality of all human beings, to speak with Karl Marx, the stability of a popular prejudice. Now, all this is far from being self-evident. There is a clear example of that in Maimonides. He writes, and this is uh, number five uh, on your handout, with regard to a Gentile idolater with whom we are not at war. If we are at war, killing is well, not only uh, uh, allowed, but well, almost a commandment. Uh, with regard to a Jewish shepherd of small livestock, I don't know why they had so bad press, but this explains a great deal uh, uh, to what extent 
uh, why, sorry, why uh, the shepherds come to uh, uh, the infant Jesus cradle. You know, they were rather outcasts. Okay. Uh, with regard to a Gentile and, and so on, to a shepherd and the like, by contrast, I don't remember what came for, uh, before, uh, we should not try to cause their deaths. Okay. Hmm? Hands off. It is, however, forbidden to save their lives if their lives are threatened. For example, if such a person fell into the sea, one should not rescue him. And the biblical quotation that comes afterwards, do not stand idly by while your brother's blood is at stake. Your brother's blood. This does not apply, uh, adds Maimonides, with regard to such individuals because they are not your brothers. Well, we remember the question which I have just been alluding to, the question of the lawyer, you know, who is my neighbor? And well, the uneasiness of the legal scholar about the precise delimitation of the neighbor was far from idle. And even, and, and even in, it remained relevant a good millennium later for Maimonides wrote in the late 11th century, uh, uh, died uh, in 2004, in the late 12th century, sorry. For the notion can very well be understood, the notion of the neighbor can very well be understood as restricted to the membership in an ethnic or religious community. Most probably, this was the, the original meaning of the term, rea, something like fellow tribesman. It evolved into fellow subject of the king of Judah, then fellow adherent to the law of Moses, and so on. This is the meaning that Maimonides supposes when he comments upon the commandments of the Bible and deals with the passage quoted by Jesus, Leviticus 19, 18. My benevolence and my love for my brother in religion should be like my benevolence and my love for myself. That's his explanation in Maimonides Arabic in the uh, Book of Commandments. The same is to be found in Maimonides' great code of Jewish law. It is a commandment, I mean the same interpretation of, the, uh, of Leviticus 19, uh, 18, uh, it is a commandment to love each Israelite as oneself, literally, as one's own body. Goof. Let me now give some examples of the enlargement of the ken, of the, the scope, ken, scope of vision, uh, um, made, uh, brought about by, by Christianity, in contradistinction to the practices of the ancient world. The exposure of unwanted babies was for the ancient peoples, to be sure, an unpleasantness. It was a dire necessity in order to avoid overpopulation. But it was not a crime that was to be avoided at all costs. To the contrary, it was common practice, so that it became a trite theme for tragic and comic playwrights. Well, Oedipus and other people began as uh, exposed <coughs> babies. It was even part of legal systems. For in Sparta, the laws of Lycurgus made it compulsory, made exposition compulsory, if the child was not robust enough. To be sure, the baby could be adopted by childless or simply merciful people, but it could as well be eaten up by animals. The philosophers, I'm sorry for my own cooperation, the philosophers did not object to it. When Plato in the Republic has Socrates sketch an ideal city, he has his Socrates advocate this practice, apparently without pangs of conscience. Aristotle permits infanticide in the case of deformed offspring. The trade guild of philosophers, for the most part, are not that thin-skinned where practical morals are at stake. 
when commenting about the passage in Plato's Republic, Averroes doesn't object anything. Now Christianity, which on this point was totally in the wake of Judaism, rebelled against this practice and gradually did away with it. Abortion too, that's my second example, abortion was in the ancient world rather common. It was looked down at as bad manners and regrettable, but not as murder. Seneca praises his mother Helvia because she accepted all her pregnancies without ever getting an abortion. Now, in Christianity, the Didache, the teaching, this very old text, uh, the, the teaching of the Twelve Apostles, prohib prohibits abortion and the killing of newborn babies. According to Tertullian, the Latin church father, the fetus in its mother womb is a man as soon as it's its form, as soon, <coughs> sorry, as its form is completed. Well, this tallied with the, um, well, the, what the physicians of the, the period said, you know, that uh, the, the soul was received only when the, the child was completed, not the embryo, but the fetus only uh, was ensouled. Tertullian says, Homo est et qui est futurus, who will be a man, is already a man. That's a number uh, six on your, uh, your handout. Third, in the ancient world, a society without slaves was hardly thinkable. In the short-lived city founded and led by Spartacus, the gladiator rebelled and became the military and political leader of former slaves, there were slaves. As a matter of fact, slavery is a phenomenon that existed throughout the whole world and probably from the earliest times. So that societies without slaves are rather the exception than the rule. Aristotle has a long and subtle discussion on the natural or non-natural character of slavery, and he comes to a qualified answer. Well, I can't deal with that right now. Slaves <laughs> were seen as incomplete human beings. According to two verses by Homer, that became some sort of proverb. Zeus, the supreme god, robs a man of half of his excellence, the Greek is arete, as soon as he is enslaved. To be sure, people like Euripides erase the differences between slaves and free people, and in fact, between sexes and ages too, in a spirit that he, interestingly himself, calls democratic. But he's poked fun at by Aristophanes, who has his Aeschylus say, uh, that's in the frogs, a comedy dear to me as Frenchman, uh, he has his Aeschylus say that Euripides deserves death for this foolhardiness. There's a character in Petronius who says, slaves too are human beings. But this character is the ridiculous Trimalcion, the upstart, this tasteless upstart. Uh, well, there's a description of the treat he, uh, well, the quality could not match the quality of the local grub, probably. But anyway, well, Christianity, contrary to what Mr. Homais, uh, well, believes, did not try to free the slaves through a re revolutionary process, but it deprived the reasons for slavery of their intellectual legitimacy. The church fathers did that by seeing the institution of slavery as a consequence of the original sin. For Basil of Caesarea, no man is a slave by nature. For Gregory of Nazians, man was created free and autonomous. Free is eleutheros, and autonomous is autexusios. In the Latin church, Augustine looks for the cause of slavery and finds it in sin, since 
quote. Nobody, um, no, you have not that on your handout. Nobody is a slave of a man or of sin in the nature in which God initially created man. Slavery has nothing to do with the natural uh, status, the natural original status of man. This is still the case, well, this reasoning is still the case in medieval authors like the legal scholar Eike von Repko, who penned the oldest German law code, the famous Mirror of the Saxons, Sachsenspiegel. You have the quotation uh, on your uh, handout. Sorry. Beg your pardon. According to the ch uh, among the church fathers, the most radical polemics against slavery is to be found in Gregory of Nyssa, the third of the Cappadocian fathers I've just been quoting to the other two. He comments upon the passage of Ecclesiastes, Kohelet, in which Solomon boasts about his being possessor of many slaves. Well, the passage is too long for me to read it here. Let me summarize the main arguments. First, God created man for him to be master of the earth and to rule over beasts, not over his fellow human beings. Second, all those human beings were made out of the same stuff. They have the same bodies and minds. Now those beings were created in the image of God and can't be purchased who could buy God's image? <coughs> the worth of a human being exceeds the price of whatever ware we can buy with money. Gregory argues on the basis, as we've just been saying, on the biblical idea according to which man was created in the image of God. And this image, interestingly, is none other than freedom. Well, there's a fourth example about the way in which girls in the ancient world were more often than not married off by their parents, which in a patriarchal society concretely meant by the father. Now the church succeeded in ensuring them the right to choose whom they should marry with or without the agreement of the father. We forgot the length of the struggle that was necessary for the church to obtain, to, to uh, get uh, this reform of the marriage laws. But uh, I stumbled recently upon a passage in Rabelais, a French author from the 16th century, in which he polemicized against uh, this right of uh, adult, to be sure, of adult girls, of uh, adult boys, to, to choose their partner in life. Well, all those facts are well known to the historians. And I have been belaboring the obvious for some minutes. Now, the question is how we have to interpret those facts, which I simply reminded you of. For in summary, one could very well contend that Christianity fought against the exposure of children, fought against abortion, fought against slavery, fought against forced marriages, <clears throat> that it prohibited them, or any other phrase. But this remains merely negative in nature. Moreover, it leaves unanswered the question why the heck it felt it had to do so. Well, it would be more interesting to say Christianity gave us eyes for us to become able to see the newborn child, the fetus, the slave, the woman, as authentic human beings. It gave morality not new rules, but new objects, beings that were not considered as fully belonging to mankind, swept into the ken of a human. Slaves, women, toddlers, pagans, I mean goyim, non-Jews, became full-fledged humans. 
Seeing human where only living were seen. Seeing full-fledged human where only potential of fledgling humanity was perceived. This is the Christian moral revolution. I could call this a phenomenological revolution, you know, enabling us to see things that remained up to a certain date invisible. Well, there we are, as far as I, to the best of my knowledge, in 2017. And I can wonder whether we are not falling back into a pre-Christian optic or blindness. Nietzsche, the well-known German philosopher of the late 19th century, as is well known, very consciously and systematically wanted to do away with Christianity and with what he called Christian morality. A phrase, no, which I would object to. Anyway, well, Nietzsche preached for what he called the, an interesting phrase, the pathos of distance, pathos de distance. He wanted to introduce between human beings this kind of distance. The phrase pathos de distance comes a dozen of times under his pen. And it should enable the higher type of humanity to mold the lower ones. The question, he writes, is whether man can place himself so far from, so far above, from the other ones that he will form them, gestalten, as the clay in the hands of the potter. Well, it might be the case that we are driven towards this kind of stance which would be radically aristocratic, or rather, in fact, concretely speaking, plutocratic. Tocqueville, of whom you may have heard here in the US, Tocqueville quoted an example of this inability to see inferior classes as sharing the same feelings as the upper ones in Madame de Sévigné, Madame de Sévigné gives an account uh, for her daughter um, in, a, in a letter sent to her. She gives an account of the repression of a rebellion in Brittany. And well, she probably could not understand that, let's say, that the ragtag and bobtail could suffer in the same way as, uh, well, the nobility. She described, uh, well, uh, people being hanged by dozens, uh, uh, people being driven out of their houses and left, left uh, uh, outside in the cold and without anything to eat. Apparently, uh, well, for, for her, for, for this nice lady, huh? for this nice lady, those people were invisible are visible only as a as well, some interesting landscape, but not as fellow human beings. We already became blind to the human in fetuses. And if the so-called transhumanist dream comes true, we may, we may be getting blind to the humanity of whoever didn't undergo the transformation and betterment that it advocates. Let me here quote what I consider to be a jewel, a wonderful sentence. It is to be found under the pen of a real scientist, namely the Irish physicist John Desmond Bernal, B-E-R-N-A-L. He was born in 1901 and died in 1971. And incidentally, his surname is known here in the States because he was the father of Martin Bernal. Martin Bernal, who uh, came up with a book on uh, the alleged uh, black African origin of Egyptian culture. Black Athena is the title. But as far as Bernal 
Bernal Sr., the father, he was a distinguished crystallographer, a fellow of the Royal Society, which is not just anything, together with a historian of hard sciences and a political activist, member of the British Communist Party. He was among the last followers and supporters <coughs> of this uh, would-be uh, genetic genetician or geneticist. Geneticist? Okay. Uh, Lysenko, Trofim Denisovich Lysenko, who uh, tried to revive the Lamarckian view of evolution uh, because this pleased Stalin. Stalin wanted to grow ananases in Siberia, and he wanted an ideology that could uh, explain how this could become possible. Well, Bernal, Bernal Sr., published in 1929 a booklet that constitutes some sort of scientific utopia. The title, The World, the Flesh, and the Devil, is an obvious parody of the ritual of baptism. Now, the subtitle explains an inquiry into the future of the three enemies of the rational soul. The part on the world deals with the conquest of interplanetary space, the part on the flesh with the remaking of the human body by surgery and other technologies. The part on the devil deals with the treatment of the human soul, curing uh, well, the illnesses, the, the mental illnesses of the human soul. The work was reprinted in 1969. Hence, it has not totally lost its actuality. In a conclusive chapter, Bernal asks... What will happen when two kinds of human beings will be extant? One made better, enhanced, as the idiom has it now, by science, and the common run of mankind. He answers with this wonderful sentence, there may not be room for both types in the same world, and the old mechanism of extinction, extinction will come into play. The better organized beings will be obliged, in self-defense, to reduce the numbers of the others until they are no longer seriously inconvenienced by them. Well, if there is a prize for British understatement, <laughs> this sentence would sweep it, would sweep it. We can guess that something like, well, let's imagine uh, Mr. Himmler uh, in uh, front of a Jewish audience and telling them, well, nothing personal. Uh, we simply will have to reduce your numbers. Well, we can guess that something like democracy could be seriously menaced, not to say utterly destroyed, by such attempts, whether they originate in Nietzsche, whether they originate, whether they have earlier sources and so on. That's a topic that I tried, by the way, partly to deal with in my very last uh, uh, big book. Well, back to the Christian model of the human. In order to see the allegedly infrahuman as fully human, no microscope is of any help. For instance, we know today far better than in the ancient world the, the embryo develops in continuity from the fecundation to the birth. Yet, this is not enough for us to consider it as human. Theologians speak of oculata fides, faith that has eyes. Every faith has eyes. Every faith enables one to see. This doesn't mean that faith makes us see something else than what really is there. Well, the object of faith is truth. Well, in normal culture, in normal, normal with quotation marks, in normal culture, distinguish the humanity of people who belong to it from the nature supposed to be basically animal of the other nations. Among some tribes, there is no other name for the tribe than the humans which implies that the other ones are explicitly or implicitly considered as animals. What has Christianity to do with that? 
Well, Christianity sees the highest realization of human together with a peak of God's presence in Jesus Christ. <coughs> Moreover, in Christ as crucified, in the body of Christ hanging on the cross, and even in his dead body, the presence of God in human reaches its peak, not because of the suffering, but because of the love with which this suffering was accepted. This means that each and every human life possesses a dignity, regardless whether his or her humanity can express itself by acts, or not yet, or not any longer, be it fully developed or not. What is then the specific contribution of Christianity? To some extent, nothing at all. Nothing new. Nothing short of what human beings have known for ages or should, should have known for ages. This disclaimer of novelty was powerfully expressed by Saint Irenaeus, the great bishop of Lyon in France in the second century. He has just shown that Christ was announced by the prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Then what could object? Well, what was the point of his coming? Since we already knew everything, the prophets had told us. And he answers, he restates the question, what then did the Lord bring to us by his advent? Know that he brought all possible novelty omnem novitatem attulit by bringing himself who had been announced. Well, there is one thing that Christianity can bring to today's mankind. Seeing human, even where other people see hardly more than consumers to be brought to buy as much as possible by apt advertising techniques, voters to be induced to cast their ballot for the right candidate by apt electoral techniques, organisms as queries of organs to be transplanted by apt surgical techniques, and so on and so forth. As a conclusion, in his famous novel, The Leopard, posthumously published in 1958, the Italian novelist Giuseppe Tomasi di Lampedusa has one of his main characters, Tancredi, the nephew of the old aristocrat who plays the lead in the novel, summarize his view of historical development in the pithy formula, se vogliamo che tutto rimanga come è, bisogna che tutto cambi. If we want that everything should stay as it is, it is necessary that everything should change. Italians have even taken advantage of the title of the novel and coined an adjective for them to express this kind of policy, gatto pardesco, something like leopard-like. And now, I could express the nature of the Christian moral revolution by turning the formula back to front so that I should say, everything can, say, can stay the same so everything needs to change. The commandments remain the same. They couldn't possibly become something else. But everything has to change when seen in a new light. Thank you so much for your attention. Christianity itself, and that is, of course, going against 
a very familiar story, the other story of secularization, um, <coughs> focusing mainly on the rise of science mm -hmm. as kind of an independent mm -hmm. um, factor um, causing secularization mm -hmm. and not religion. So I was wondering, your description of seeing humans as humans, mm -hmm. does that also imply that this optics is ultimately secular? Not I mean, I think there are ways to not understand secular as objective uh -huh. or scientific. That's why I was hinting at Weber. Or uh, as... Uh, Weber. Weber. Right, uh -huh. or the typical interpretation of Weber secularization being rationalization, uh -huh. being bureaucratization, <coughs> things uh -huh. like that. Uh -huh. But you were more saying human as human, being across the divide of, you know, your brothers being brothers of religion, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, other mm -hmm. religions, you know, become kind of part of the same. So it's the, the question is whether this is a, a different understanding of, and I'm thinking a little bit along the lines of what Charles Taylor was saying in his On a Secular Age, when he's also suggesting that secularization actually started with Christianity mm -hmm. and its definitions of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. That's a different understanding of the secular, different from the kind of modern reading of secularization. Okay, well, perhaps I can see, I can understand better what you were driving at. Well, in, uh, you mentioned Max Weber. I had not recognized his name because you pronounced it in Max the... Weber. Oh, Max Weber. Okay. Uh, Max, uh, Max Weber, the German sociologist, well, the founder of... Uh, the German founder of sociology, uh, understood the process of secularization as a, uh, a way for mankind to weigh anchors away from magics. His idea was the end of the magical worldview. Well, I would make a first observation. Up to a point, we have not improved our rationality by leaving by, by leaving the, the basic assumption of magics behind us. Well, what is technology? Technology is a magic that functions. You remember what uh, Francis Bacon, uh, Lord Chancellor, in the early uh, uh, 17th century, wrote about magics. Expurgatio vocabuli magiae. We have to give to the word magics a purer meaning. Magics uh, in the Middle Ages was considered as efficient, and for this reason, as dangerous. You really could get in touch with, uh, well, demons. You really could do that. Okay. And precisely because it worked, it was to be uh, <coughs> discarded. <coughs> for Bacon, there is no moral objection. He's not against magic because it's bad. He's against magic because this, this doesn't work. Whereas technology does work. Okay. That's my first observation. And the second one, uh, well, would deal uh, with the, uh, the possible origin of secularization. There is a uh, sentence in uh, Heidegger's uh, book on Nietzsche in which he says that uh, secularization uh, is a misnomer and doesn't explain anything. Because uh, if a process of secularization should take place, well, this presupposes that there is already something like a cyclum, a cyclum, sorry. There is already some profane realm. And the profane realm can exist only, this is Heidegger, but I partly uh, uh, chime in, um, the uh, profane domain can only happen if the non-profane, the sacred and so on, withdraws. Uh, well, that's uh, uh, Matthew Arnold's uh, Dover Beach. Hmm? 
beach that appears when the, uh, because of the of the, the ebb of, of of the sea, and we have to look for uh, the origin of this process of secularization in the religious realm. I would allude for well, this is well known. You know, I'm I'm sort of belaboring the obvious, but perhaps not for everybody. But well, the prophets of Israel polemicized against the presence of the sacred in uh, well uh, verdant trees, in uh, the fecundity of uh, crops, uh, uh, of, of flocks and, and, and herds, and so on. Two, uh, on behalf of a totally different notion, not the sacred, but the saint. God, the God of Israel, is saint because he is not sacred. But the sacred is basically the object of magic. The sacred is that which we can sort of grasp and uh, exploit. We can tap in the forces of nature by some devices, or words, or gestures, and so on. And this is the real, uh, uh, what is real behind what we call at present secularization. As far as the generalization of this idea is concerned, uh, well, I would be more prudent. You know, I, I really wonder whether this can, uh, whether we can get much mileage with that. Uh, I would be, uh, uh, on this point, I would be more prudent than uh, uh, good old Taylor. But well, that's a matter of taste, eh? of sensibility, let's say. Okay, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Uh, I was struck by the phrase um, phenomenological revolution, mm -hmm. and it seems to me um, one disanalogy between the phenomenological revolution mm -hmm. and a scientific revolution mm -hmm. is in mm -hmm. the case of a scientific revolution, it's much easier to tell the story of how we got from one state to the other. Mm -hmm. So this is why... The world seen this way before. This is why it's seemed mm -hmm, afterwards. Mm -hmm, we can sort of tell a story of discovery. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. With phenomenological revolutions, it's often much more opaque to quite how it happens. Mm -hmm. I think we sort of we recognise that to be born into the early twenty first century in America, sort of it doesn't require any special work on our part to recognise the humanity of others that would have been mm -hmm. obscured before. But if you mm -hmm. ask the question, well, how did we get from one state to the other? It would be mm -hmm. very obscure. So could you say a bit more about how exactly Christianity brought about? Is this a change in belief that makes possible a phenomenological change? Is it more to do with practices? Mm -hmm. So what, mm -hmm. what within the, sort of the complex of the religion mm -hmm. is, is mm -hmm. yielding this phenomenological change? Well, first of all, you should not press too much the image. I'm no, not steeped in, not really steeped in real phenomenology. Uh, I was simply thinking of uh, <coughs> what uh, uh, Heidegger once again tells us in chapter 7 of the Zion and Zeit, i.e. phenomenology uh, does not consist basically in describing what is already visible, but in making visible what used not to be that way, okay, let's say, uh, uh, in the uh, more or less, uh, uh, well, the, the well-known uh, utterance by Paul Klee, you know, painting does not reproduce what is visible, but it makes visible in the first place. Well, okay, well now, uh, perhaps in order to, to, to get a more, more clarity, to shed more clarity, more, more light on, on the, uh, the, the Christian revolution. Let's think of uh, 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 the passage in the epistle to the Galatians. You say Galatians? Galatians? Uh, St. Paul, of course. In which he says, uh, there is no longer a man and woman, uh, Greek and Jew, um, a free man and slave and so on. And well, uh, this takes up, uh, and in the same order, uh, the well-known Jewish morning prayer, in which uh, the pious Jew blesses God, thanks God, not to have created him slave, woman, and goy, and, and pagan. And well, 
the uh, revolution consisted in <coughs> neutralizing those sets of opposites. Well, of course, there are still uh, uh, male and female uh, human beings. There are still uh, uh, Greeks, or Greeks, uh, pagans, uh, and Jews. And there are still uh, um, um, well, slave owners, or, or there used to be still at uh, these times, slave owners and well, human cattle. But this was dis this was discarded as irrelevant. And for this reason, I think the first revolution is theoretical in nature. Theoretical. Well, the practical consequences came, hobbled along afterwards with some delay, with much delay in some cases. For slavery, uh, we had to wait till the 18th century, yeah, approximately, yeah, for the concrete realization, for, the, uh, for what made concrete for, for, for the technical progress, we have to, to be quite concrete, that made possible uh, uh, the end of, of slavery. Uh, uh, slavery was no longer economically interesting. Although the historians, the historians qualify this uh, 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 received wisdom you know, about the economic origin of the uh, end of slavery. They tell us that slavery was still uh, uh, rentable. It, it paid. It, it, it was still something that paid off, but less than in former times. And in this, on this point, it's an interesting example of the way in which consciousness can anticipate uh, uh, over reality. Not totally. You know, Spartacus, as I told you, had slaves. <laughs> A society without slaves was almost as unthinkable as a, a society without, uh, without uh, um, uh, mechanics, without our <laughs> mechanical slaves. And for the same reason, we can't do away with slaves, but our slaves are machines rather than uh, human beings. Okay. Then I would say, to answer, uh, uh, well, rather theoretical than practical. Practical came afterwards. I think we have time for one, one last question. Well, you are the uh, chairman. I, I defer to you. I defer to you. Well, I saw uh, three hands raised at this, almost at the same time. Uh, well, perhaps ladies. Ladies first. Thank you so much. Um, so through your lecture, you portrayed Christianity as the unifying religion. Yes. Unifying, unifying force. Mm -hmm. Sheds light on commonality between Speak up, please. I'm an old man. You portrait as a unifying force that sheds light on the commonality of uh -huh. human beings mm -hmm. that were previously invisible. But I wonder if Christianity could blind us from seeing some other humans as humans too. Could it possibly be a blindfold? Mm -hmm. Could it possibly be a dividing force? So, for example, how do you explain religious conflict? which, if not are directly inspired by the scriptures, uh -huh. at least derive some of its momentum from it. Uh, okay, uh, well, uh, there are two sides to your question. If I heard, well, it's a real question of, of ears rather than of <coughs> brains. Uh, okay, first, could we extend uh, the uh, uh, enlargement of uh, uh, the scope brought about by Christianity Beyond uh, the boundaries of mankind, that's the. Or rather, beyond the scope of Christians. For example, I think the conflict between Christianity, Christians, and uh, Muslims. Oh yes. Okay. <laughs> okay. Then inside the same, uh, uh, well, common mankind. Well, well, a, an easy cop out. Uh, would be to uh, point out that people who acted in a bad way were bad Christians. <laughs> but there is more to it than a uh, uh, received wisdom. More to it because the fact that we consider, uh, we, well, we, uh, perhaps we people of the Yale community are we, people who got influenced by Western culture, broadly speaking. So the fact that we consider that there is a level 
on which each and every human being has the same rights, the same duties, the same dignity, and so on, is basically the same, should not be taken for granted. There are, well, ideologies, be they religious in nature or not, for which there is a gradient between the people who adhere to uh, the basic tenets, say, of a religion, and people who don't. And, well, I'm sorry, but since you mentioned Islam, you must know that, uh, according to the common interpreta interpretation sorry, of a verse of the Quran, uh, that's in the seventh surah, Verse 172, 772. The whole of mankind, the whole of mankind, was miraculously brought out of the loins, biblical euphemism, euphemism of Adam, and set in front of God's throne. Okay, you have this fantastic scene, you know, before the creation of the world, before the creation of the world, the whole of mankind is there. Uh, our ancestors and our offspring till the end of the world. The whole of mankind is there. God asks the question, am I not your Lord? The answer is, well, if I could uh, do that with a smile, the answer would be right on. <laughs> uh, yes, of course. Okay. Which means that every human being who does not recognize, after his or her birth, you know, after the creation of the world, each and, human, each and every human being who does not recognize the lordship of God is not really a son of Adam or is some sort of a lapsed son of Adam. <coughs> he or she has lost part of his or her humanity. And for this reason, an unbeliever, uh, says the Quran, is the worst of all animals. The worst of all animals. Well, I'm not uh, saying that uh, uh, Christians behaved uh, in a perfectly gentlemanly way in the past, but just show me who did. Uh, which community, uh, well, um, was perfectly innocent of any violence and things like that. I'm afraid uh, you won't find a great deal of people who will meet the requirements. Okay. What I am concentrate, well, what I am competent for. <coughs> is certainly not historical research and especially not historical research about violence in the history of humanity. But let me observe that the, in the, at the principle, a principle which was not always uh, uh, well respected, at the level of principles, the affirmation according to which every man is human, well, every human being is a human being, this is a wonderful tautology, was there. Even when the new world was conquered by, well, by uh, Spaniards, Portuguese, Englishmen, Frenchmen, and so on. There were theologians, you may remember the well-known Disputatio, well-known intellectual confrontation that took place in uh, Valladolid in, in, in Spain in uh, um, uh, for, um, uh, 1565, something like that, yeah, around that, well, you'll find. Uh, Google knows. <laughs> Google knows. Uh, well, both sides, both sides, i.e. Las Casas and Gines uh, de Sepulveda, both sides acknowledged the humanity. Uh, of the Indians. The difference was, well, are those people, well, let's say, uh, uh, 
able to receive the fullness of uh, the Christian message, including what is included, what is implied in this message, i.e., freedom, yeah, rights of property, and so on and so forth. Or if this was Las Casas' position, or on the other side, uh, Sepulveda, who was an Aristotelian, thought in Aristotelian terms and said, "Well, those people are like kids." They are fully human, but they are kids. And for this reason, they need, well, to, be, to, to have a, uh, a foster parent of sorts. They need to be kept in tutelage till they will be able to, uh, uh, well, understand uh, what uh, uh, rights of property and so on uh, are all about. There was no uh, horrible monster who denied contrary to uh, the common legend about this uh, uh, dispute. Contrary to the common legend, we have a tendency to think in Hollywood terms, you know, the good guy, bad guy, okay, uh, the good guy being Las Casas and the, the bad guy being Sepulveda. This was not the case. Was not the case. Well, to be sure, <laughs> I would side with Las Casas, but <laughs> in the 16th century, this was not that evident. Okay, we could enlarge this to uh, the relationship of the Christians with other uh, other peoples. They were exactly as bad <laughs> as the other ones, but they had, in my opinion, the better idea. Question being whether uh, the idea uh, gets a foothold <laughs> in reality or not. Now, that's another story. That's uh, historian uh, uh, food. <laughs> <laughs> all right. well, it's all